I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico, and also uh, Spooky Dracula. Ooh, whoa. Look out. Pull up your colors. I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. And uh, is that a full moon I see? Um, getting itchy behind the ears. <laughs> Wait, why? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Dogs, they scratch their ears. And that's, I imagine that's probably a werewolf thing. Yeah, that's... Oh, good. Oh, okay, good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Watch out if you're a skeleton... Because wolves sure do like to eat bones. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Uh, folks, um, it's Halloween, and it's it's so spooky. We love it. Um, <laughs> this uh, this uh, episode particularly has like a really shoehorned in uh, Halloween theme, and I want to make sure everyone feels uh, viscerally how shoehorned it is. <laughs> but before we get to the Halloween part, let me let me say this. Um, Dean and I started this podcast for two reasons. First and foremost, to hang out, and that we're accomplishing that right now, and it's great. And you are too, uh, kind of. Uh, but also to talk about the weird intersection between Marxism and Christianity. And on this podcast, um, we do that a lot. But lately, we've been talking about other things like climate change and imperialism and, uh, I don't know, weird uh, niche things happening in Latin America and stuff like that. And it's great. But this week, we're getting back to the heart of the podcast uh, by hanging out, and, but also by talking about Marxism kind of more explicitly than we have, I think, lately. Uh, so to preface some of this episode, um, I have to tell you about what's going on in my own personal life, and I hope you can bear with me. <laughs> so I've been having a lot of like uh, organizing conversations lately with people about work and wages, and that has got me especially cranky <laughs> because... It's frustrating talking to people, I gotta tell you. Um, usually I'm just uh, behind the computer, but lately I've been having these, uh, I've been doing all this like texting for uh, for work uh, about this um, minimum wage uh, initiative in, uh, in Nebraska. And I've been talking to people and it's been great uh, to hear what they have to say about the minimum wage and kind of seeing how people think about wages. And it is very confusing. Uh, people have a lot of thoughts, but mostly they're bad ones. <laughs> Um, I've been doing my best to, I think, make the case that the minimum wage in the U.S. is like far too low and that low wage workers need more money to live on than they currently make. Um, I think I've been doing that pretty well, but, you know, I'm hard sure to say. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think I do pretty well about it. Um, but the uh, the most common refrain, the thing that people have been telling me the most is that I just need to learn some basic mm -hmm. economics. <laughs> um, 
And uh, fair enough. I mean, maybe I do need to learn some basic economics. <laughs> so in this episode, uh, we're going to learn the most basic economics from Karl Marx, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to take everyone's advice, and I'm going to get to the bottom of wages here. Um, I feel like I've done my due diligence about how, you know, things in economics works. <laughs> I've, read, I've read some books here and there. Um, but we're going to talk about Karl Marx, especially as he, as he relates to wage labor and capitalism. And um, also... Here's the shoehorned in added bonus because it's Halloween time. We're going to do this, um, this big uh, revisitation of Marx and also uh, this big thing about wages um, around some of his spookiest quotes comparing capital to vampires, ghosts and werewolves. And it's all in here. It's great. So uh, I don't know, Dean, before we go any further, have you ever worked a minimum wage job like ever? I mean, I'm sure you have, have right? more than one of them, even several of them. Yeah. What was your favorite? What was your least favorite minimum wage job that you ever worked? Uh, for sure, working in a Christian bookstore, 100%. No contest. Oh, no. They paid you a minimum wage in a Christian bookstore? They really bookstore? did. They would have paid me less if they could. Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, here's an interesting fun fact. When I was in college, I worked at the uh, the IT help desk, <laughs> uh, fixing everyone's computers, installing old people's uh, <laughs> like toolbars that they accidentally installed. <laughs> Um, and because it was a private religious university, um, they did not have to pay me the state minimum wage. They could get away with paying me the, uh, the federal oh, minimum man. wage. So for, yeah, for, for three years, I worked a job where I only made seven twenty five oh an hour. <laughs> I gotta tell you, it That's sucks. Awesome. <laughs> I had a plate. <laughs> yeah. I had food and board already kind of set up and seven twenty five an hour is still, <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty miserable actually that sucks i don't like it minimum wage jobs uh suck i did have one good minimum wage job i was a barista at a very cool coffee shop that i liked um but uh i didn't i i would have liked to make more money that's true <laughs> who wouldn't um but yeah you know what uh the, here's the weirdest thing about working a minimum wage job um, it's true what they say. If they could pay you less, they would. And what that usually translated to me in terms of work ethic is uh, I'm only going to care as much as I feel like uh, this wage cares about me. And guess what? It's not very much. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think it is a good time to be re revisiting all that as well. Um, especially because wage politics are, uh, probably going to heat up again. I would think as the midterms are approaching in the United States, oh, yeah. right? Like it's going to be a big ticket item in uh, lots of campaigns. Um, it's still even an issue here in, in Canada. Uh, in Ontario, there's been a, a minimum wage fight that is ongoing. I think we're a little bit further, thankfully, than the U.S., but still nowhere near a, a livable situation, especially in a place like Toronto. And uh, I got to say, man, I can't imagine working at a Christian bookstore for minimum wage right now in this wild moment of history. And I think, uh, yeah, we got we to gotta raise that wage. I agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, actually, the one minimum wage job. Well, okay, not even quite minimum wage job. When I was a okay, I was I was contract a contract college professor for a little bit, and that was a sub minimum wage wow. job for sure. Um, that was, I mean, they pay you a contract, right? But like, if you factor it out in terms of like how much you're actually working and how much you're making, it is far less than. The yeah, you a rich liberal college professor made less than minimum wage. I can't believe it. I know, hard to believe, right? But that's true. <laughs> a lot of things are like that, and uh, a lot of things like that are bad. <laughs> Anyways, like you said, Dean, it's going to become, I think, uh, a bigger issue, especially like as we lurch towards, um, I don't know, either a recession or something that feels mm -hmm. a lot like a recession. 
um, as uh, big bankers in the United States try to like get a handle on um, inflation. Wages are becoming more of a conversation. All that say it's gonna it's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing now. It's a thing. It was a thing last year. It's gonna be a thing this year. It's you great. know what? In um, fact, I think what's a one weird thing actually that I saw that uh, is related to what you just said um, in light of inflation going up. The uh, Central Bank of Canada, uh, this was maybe a month ago or something, early in the fall, when they were raising rates and all that, uh, the head of the Central Bank was like, um, businesses should not raise the wage because they don't want to get into like a demand um, inflation cycle or whatever they call it. Uh, with the premise being that like if workers have more buying power, then they'll keep inflating prices as though prices just naturally sort of go up in response to the, the mm. buying power of workers. And I think that is also a really important sort of revealing moment for how society narrates wages and how Marx actually helps us think through wages. And we can get to Marx in a second. But I guess uh, what I really appreciated about that kind of revealing mask off moment of capitalism is from the banker's perspective, like <laughs> the only way really to solve inflation is by raising uh, interest rates, it would definitely not have anything to do with making sure that working people can, like, afford to eat and live. And in fact, like, it's an admission that working people are just going to have to suffer some more. And if we want the economy to be healthy, then we should not put them, you know, in a better financial situation. That in fact, that would be even worse. And I think that is so important, right? <laughs> the, the capitalist perspective is like, if we gave workers a leg up, it would actually make our economic system worse. And uh, yeah, Marx, I think, does a good job of explaining why like that is a bad way to think about <laughs> wages, demand, prices, and all the rest of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, people at the Federal Reserve in the U.S. are saying the same the same kinds of things, just extremely uh, mask-off kind of <laughs> moments where uh, clearly <laughs> clearly they have a pretty, um, they want to put a finger on the scale there, you know, about who, who lives an okay life and who yeah. doesn't. Um, okay. There's a lot that we've said there so far, and uh, there's a lot more to be said. When it comes to Marxist philosophy, there's a lot going on, especially when it comes to wage labor. Um, it's like, you know, wage labor is like one of those things that makes capitalism capitalism for Marx. Um, but one of the most interesting things that I think Marx does is that when he breaks down how labor actually works in terms of like wages and like what is a wage, um, a lot of things are revealed in a capitalist economy, just like you were saying, Dean. Um, you know, I think that, like, we take the existence of wage labor as just sort of, like, a given, as a thing that, like, is necessary in the world that's just sort of, like, natural and moving. Like, it's always been this way or whatever. But it's actually a really particular economic idea that has a history and it has, like, a material grounding. And there's a reason that it exists. It's just not, like, a thing that exists because, you know, it's a good idea. <laughs> it's just it, it serves a function, I guess, mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Um, in the conversations I've had with people... You know, it's like people imagine, you know, they, they people tell themselves all kinds of like really weird stories about wages. Like uh, conservatives think that wages are, you know, that's what like, like a high wage is a reward that you get for learning a skill or mm -hmm. having like a particular like skill set that is rare or something, which I think is pretty weird because nobody has a skill set that that's that, that, that that's that rare. <laughs> Um, nobody can do a thing that no one else can do. <laughs> just like no one's like an artisan blacksmith anymore or something that just like doesn't exist. Um, it's, you know, um, Fordism and Taylorism, uh, you know, particular productive ideologies have made people very replaceable. Um, <laughs> just like a weird idea, I think. Um, but also like liberals also have some pretty weird ideas about wages or they tell really weird stories about wages. Um, some that I'm actually really sympathetic to, honestly. 
Um, for example, uh, there's this thing that does exist in the world called the MIT Wage Calculator. And I think it's good. Um, I mean, it's good, but it's also it has an interesting logic to it, I guess. So uh, basically what it does is it tells you, like, how much you would need to make to, like, live in a particular city, um, which is interesting. So, like, um, in my city, in St. Louis, you need to get paid, like, $16.80 something cents to, like, be able to afford rent and be able to live here. And that's an interesting calculation of wages because, oh, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's good because it does put, like, the experience of the worker, like, into the factor, which I, I think is great. But also it's, like, calculating a wage based off of not really, like, economics, but it's, like, about how much rent costs, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I think is kind of weird. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's a better story than um, the, the conservative one. But I think that the one that Marx tells is actually really helpful because he kind of explains why it is wages exist in the first place and, like, why are they always so low? Um, and uh, let's let's get to the bottom of it, though. Uh, I, I guess, like, keeping in the Halloween spirit, um, Marx tells a story about wages and labor that is pretty different than the one that capitalists, either conservatives or liberals, tell. Um, and it's a horror story, the spookiest <laughs> one. So um, we're we're good. Uh, we're good to start off on that Halloween theme on the right foot here. Yeah, uh, Marx, I think what I've learned the most from Marx out of anything really is actually to try to historicize capitalism, to tell the story of how capitalism comes into being so that it doesn't feel like a natural given, but we can sort of see how it's contingent and why it came to be. And there's a great quote in Capital on this Halloween theme where Marx says, Capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. What a spooky monster. Don't want to see it. Sounds disgusting. Uh, and yeah. uh, what Marx is trying to say in that chapter in particular in Capital is that capital isn't a kind of like neat and clean natural set of economic relationships that we all participate in because they make sense or because they're the natural outgrowth of our rational exchanges or peaceful relationships with each other. Uh, on the contrary, capital is the kind of thing that, uh, well, capitalism is the kind of thing that comes to be throughout uh, really violent moments of expropriation. Uh, you know, the expropriation of land, especially, and the making private of what was once a common kind of experience of land. Um, also, the uh, uh, total expropriation of people's labor up to and including chattel slavery and commodifying human beings and so on, right? There's this real, like, violent kind of, uh, uh, like, soil out of which capitalism grows, um, the genocide of indigenous peoples and so on. Like, Marx really points to those things as all being... Uh, necessary features in at least the way that capitalism has has grown in the world. And capitalist economists want to sort of like put all that aside and say, you know, even if that's how it came into being or something, even if they get around to talking about, which usually they don't, it's those are all kind of accidents, right? <laughs> Arbitrary features that aren't really capitalism per se. Uh, but Marx wants to say those things all actually reveal the brutality of the system and they continue to be baked in to our economic logic which is a logic of oppression, domination, expansion, colonization, and so on. So uh, capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. Uh, it's a great poetic line for Marx, but also uh, a really helpful way of kind of getting us into a headspace to start thinking about something like wages with that huge weight of like violent history behind it. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're all gathered around the spooky Halloween campfire and uh, the monster's capitalism <laughs> And the way that it <laughs> the way that it kills you is uh, wage labor. Um, so, OK, capitalism is bad. 
if you're listening to the podcast, you know that much already, and that's great. Um, I'm glad we're all on the same page with that. <laughs> um, but wage labor in particular is the kind of like the way that uh, capitalism, I think, disciplines workers, uh, but also it's the way that it exploits it. So it's worth definitely figuring out, right? Is a wage just like, you know, the money that your boss trades you for coming into work or is it something different? And what Marx is here to tell us is that it is actually a lot different than the way that I think most people think about it. Um, okay. So I'm going to read kind of a long quote here. It's not that long. It's a little mm -hmm. bit long, but I think it's pretty illustrative here. This is a quote from an essay, uh, like like a like an article that Marx wrote for the newspaper called Wage, Labor, and Capital. And he wrote it in 1847. This is like the year before the Communist Manifesto comes out. But the ideas that um, he works through in this essay are things that kind of stick with him um, through capital. Either. And it's uh, it's uh, meant to it's, be like read by working people, right? Like he's trying to communicate his ideas in an accessible way. Whether or not he does that, who knows? But <laughs> here's, here's his attempt. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is what he says in Wage, Labor, and Capital. It appears that the capitalist buys their labor with money and that for money they sell him their labor. But this is merely an illusion. What they actually sell to the capitalist for money is their labor power. This labor power the capitalist buys for a day, a week, a month, etc. And after he has bought it, he uses it up by letting the worker labor during the stipulated time. With the same amount of money with which the capitalist has bought their labor power, for example, two shillings, he could have bought a certain amount of sugar or any other commodity. The two shillings with which he bought 20 pounds of sugar is the price of the 20 pounds of sugar. The two shillings with which he bought 12 hours use of labor power is the price of 12 hours of labor. Labor power then is a commodity, no more, no less than is the sugar. The first is measured by the clock and the other by the scales. He goes on to say then uh, a little bit later on in the essay, wages therefore are not a share of the worker in the commodities produced by himself. Wages are the part of already existing commodities with which the capitalist buys a certain amount of productive labor power. Consequently, labor power is a commodity which its possessor, the wage worker, sells to the capitalist. And why does he sell it? It's in order to live. So this is, I think, extremely helpful for thinking through wages and labor um, because we have all kinds of weird ideas about it. And Marx kind of breaks it down. A capitalist buys labor power from you. Um, like as if it's a commodity to to be bought and sold, not in terms of like um you know not just about like your your time on the clock, but it's about how much you're producing for a particular amount of time, um, and it's a commodity to buy and sell. I mean that's that's it when it comes down to it. I don't know, Dean. Does that uh, explanation <laughs> make sense with your experience of wage labor, or is there something? <laughs> no, I think obviously Marx is completely correct. But uh, I think it's helpful, too, to recognize that it's not only Marx who sees labor as a commodity. Like, we talk about the labor market all the time, right? Like, mm -hmm. capitalists know that labor is a commodity. It's a thing that is bought and sold. It has a price. The price fluctuates. One of the big discourses during the pandemic has been the rising cost of labor, right? The, the uh, working people don't want to get paid less. Um, the the commodity of labor was getting more expensive than it was before the pandemic because people didn't want to work shitty jobs under bad conditions and they were willing to hold out or wait or make a change and so on. So uh, Marx is not like completely unique in treating labor as a commodity. Where Marx is, is unique is by saying, well, because labor is a commodity, we should try to think through exactly what uh, what the, the kind of relationship there is behind that commodity. So 
as he points out, um, the capitalist needs that commodity because labor is the only thing that can really get all the other commodities together in such a way that it can, uh, you know, produce like a something that can be sold later on, another commodity for profit. So if you have a shoe factory and you buy all the stuff to make shoes, you still need someone to come put the shoes together, right? And labor is the, the unique commodity that can really add uh, economic value to all that stuff. To And that's why going on strike is important and so on, right? Um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, the wage worker, so you and me and most other people, probably everyone listening to this podcast, if you're not a subsistence farmer <laughs> or whatever, uh, congrats, you're some kind of wage labor probably. Um, that kind of relationship is uh, you, you sell your, your labor power because you have to in order to live. If you didn't sell it, if you couldn't find a buyer, if you were stuck on the market, nobody would buy your labor, then you, know, you would starve or you would at least be reliant on other people and so on and so forth. Um, so, uh, Marx is really trying to point out the way in which having labor in a commodified way, treating it as a commodity, creates this fundamental oppressive imbalance between the capitalist and the worker. And I think the last piece that's really useful is, uh, Marx says elsewhere in this little essay, he's like, if you ask a worker, why do they get a wage? They'll say, oh, that's just kind of what I get paid for the time that I spend. Um, and Marx is like, it's not the time, it's the labor power. That's the thing that you're you're selling. And that is so important too, right? It's like, it's our sort of power, <laughs> our ability that is unique in that. It's not a reward for time spent. It's not a price for your time, spending your time at work. Um, it's really our, our labor power. And that means that we should know that we, uh, we have the keys to that power and we can maybe... Uh, unplug it if we need to. So Marx is trying to identify the the power relations there in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that labor power part is actually really important as we are going to move forward through some of Marx's other writings. Um, but before we get there, though, I think something really interesting about being a union worker is the ways that like um, these ideas in particular about your work, like your labor power being a commodity like your union can like uh, I mean, a union just in general, like leans into that understanding. And whenever, you know, it comes time to like bargain a new contract and, and everyone in the union says we want to raise, um, you know, that's like <laughs> that's like the the one little bit of power that workers actually have to say that. Sorry, the um, the cost of our labor power has gone up and now you have to mm -hmm. pay it. Right. And that's what's cool about being in union, because you can actually do that. Right. You can actually tell the your boss that like. Sorry, the, the price of our labor has gone up. You have to deal with it now. Whereas if you're an individual wage worker, right, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can ask for a raise and maybe your boss will give it to you, which would be great. Um, <laughs> but your boss can just say no, right? So um, uh, because there's, there's no there's no teeth to that, right? If, you, if they say no and you get mad about it, there's nothing you can do. But uh, if every worker at your, uh, at your job agrees that uh, – the cost of your labor is going up and the cost of theirs is going up, then your boss just has to <laughs> deal with it, right? <laughs> so I don't know. Um, labor unions are good because they uh, they help like leverage that uh, recognition that uh, labor power is a commodity in, in, in a good yeah. way. Yeah, and I mean, bringing it back to the minimum wage conversation too, the reason we have a legally mandated minimum wage is because capitalists are always trying to reduce costs at every turn. And the one cost they want to reduce more than any other is labor power. Uh, and That's if right. they could reduce it to zero, they would. And historically, they have, right? <laughs> That's what slavery is. It's the the use of labor with zero uh, wage at all given. 
Um, and it's important to kind of recognize that a legalized minimum wage is basically a, a price control on a particular market, a particular commodity in some respects. I mean, it's a bit different, but like you can think of it that way in a, as in a heuristic kind of way. Right. Like uh, the, the government basically recognizes that like capitalists would drive that cost down as far as they possibly could if given the chance. And so they're fixing it at a certain rate to be like, well, you know, I guess we still think citizens should uh, <laughs> should be able to at least afford this much. So uh, important to recognize that's like the one thing standing between working people and like absolute financial abyss at the at the bottom of uh, kind of what our society deems, you know, low wage work. Yeah, that's right. Um, the minimum wage in the United States is very bad. I got to tell you, it's very low, but at least it's something. I don't know. <laughs> that's bleak. It's that's a very bleak way to think about it. It could be less. <laughs> it could be. It could be less. It should be far more. But uh, anyways, that's true. Uh, kind of like a uh, an interesting mechanism that does fix it, so capitalists don't run everything to zero. Um, okay, let's let's get spooky with it though. Um, we have the the labor power thing is important, right? It's labor is a commodity, um, and that's an important piece. Though in this other chapter in Capital, uh, it's chapter ten called the Working Day. Marx kind of goes at length to talk about like the constraints of work in a day and like how capitalists sort of figure this out and um, how it works against um, workers in particular. Um, so we have labor power. That's like how hard you're working. That's like the 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 force by which uh, you create value for your employer. But um, when it comes to wages and like calculating them during a day, right? There's like there has to be a sort of necessary limit on the day. Like, um, you know, is it eight hours? Is it six hours? Is it 12 hours? Whatever. One of those, there's a limit somewhere, right? Because human beings are finite creatures and you have to stop sometime. <laughs> um, I mean, ideally, at least. Um, but, uh, you know, when it comes to wages, you're getting paid to produce value. But then, like, what happens when um, the value that you produce already surpasses your wage? So, like, you know, you've you've created enough value for your employer so that your wage is already taken care of. So, like, what is a capitalist doing then? Or, like, how does that part work? And then Marx gets kind of into the weeds with some very interesting stuff that I think is actually worth thinking about because uh, it's an important it's an important feature of capitalism. I'll, I'll read it and then we'll talk about it more. Yeah, great. <laughs> okay. This is from Capital Volume 1, Chapter 10, The Working Day. Man, I love being a podcast where we're telling you the chapter <laughs> and uh, chapter title of, of what <laughs> of which, uh, part of capital we're reading. That's cool. Um, <laughs> it's not. Okay. The capitalist has his own views on the outermost limit, the necessary limit of the working day. As a capitalist, he is only capital personified. His soul is the soul of capital. This is some spooky, spooky stuff. <laughs> you need an exorcism. Yeah, that's right. But capital has one single life impulse, the tendency to create value and surplus value, to make its constant factor, the means of production, absorb the greatest possible amount of surplus labor. Capital is dead labor, that vampire-like that only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. The time during which the laborer works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labor power he has purchased of him. If the laborer consumes his disposable time for himself, he robs the capitalist. If you're, uh, if you're pooping on the clock, this is what you're doing, <laughs> and that's great. The capitalist then takes his stand on the law of exchange of commodities. He, like all other buyers, seeks to get the greatest possible benefit of the use value of his commodity. Okay, 
So this is not written for workers in a newspaper. This is written, I don't know, in capital. So it's a little bit, a little bit denser, a little bit more complicated. But like, here's kind of the idea here, right? In any job that you're working, you, you know, you work a set amount of time, whether that's eight hours a day or six hours a day, or you're working half a day, I don't know, whatever it is, there's a certain amount of time that you're working. And um, while you're, when, you, when you're there, you know, you're producing labor power, um, which is creating value for your employer. So when you're working, there's like, there's this thing like necessary labor, which means like, that's the amount of time you have to work to produce enough value to cover your own wage. That is to me, that, that, that's to say that like, you work a certain amount of time that and you produce a certain amount of value so that like you basically have like paid your own salary <laughs> basically it's kind of the idea right like you're creating enough value so that your boss can then turn around and sell the value in, in terms of capital and like can pay you, you sell two foot long subway sandwiches yeah exactly <laughs> you sell two foot long subway sandwiches you get paid one but then like you still have you know 50 minutes of your job <laughs> of, of your uh, of your uh, of the hour left right so then anything that goes over the necessary labor time is what Marx calls surplus labor. So the more surplus labor that your boss can extract from you, the more value you create for your boss without your boss paying you additional wages. So, you know, you make the ones the, the one subway sandwich and it takes you two minutes and, um, you know, you the, somebody pays for it. And that basically covers your wage for the hour. Right. But then if you sell a second one, you're making, you know, two subway sandwiches and now your boss has made, um, you know, they, they've, they've made enough to cover your wage. And then they've also made enough to, like, kind of put in their pocket. But then, you know, like I said, you have 45 more minutes left in your hour shift or whatever. And then you're making more and more Subway sandwiches. So at the end of the day, you know, you, you um, clearly pay your own, your own salary and the value that you produce. Uh, whereas, and you're also just putting more and more money into the, into the pockets of your boss, right? That's, that's the, uh, the surplus labor. And um, the thing that Marx is saying here that it's like a vampire, I think, is is so right because like you're not getting paid for all that stuff. I don't know. You're doing all of this work. You're um, you know you work for an hour, but you're only getting paid you know the uh, the product. You're only getting paid for like one of the things that you actually made, and it's just kind of like this bonkers system where um, you know you're getting shortchanged, but that's also the only way that capital can move forward is by like sucking off the surplus mm-hmm. <laughs> of your. Uh, of your labor power. And I mean, I, I mean, there's no way to really look at that logically and think of it as anything else, but like a weird mythology or delusion that we tell ourselves because that's not like, that's not a fair arrangement at all. Right. It just, uh, that is just the way that it works for, you know, whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, the vampire metaphor is really great uh, for lots of reasons. It's a good suggestive image, but uh, it also emphasizes that the capitalist is the one uh, dependent on the worker, on the laborer, and also, uh, you know, couldn't really subsist forever um, on their own, right? That What the capitalist does is arranges a situation in which they can make a profit, right? Capitalists like to tell stories that, like, they're extremely hard workers and they're the ones out there creating value. In fact, they'll talk about themselves that way all the time, right? They're value creators or value, I don't know, accelerators or whatever bizarre entrepreneurial jargon is floating around. Um, but the the catch is like they're not actually creating value. They are getting sort of, you know, they're arranging means of production and labor power and so on in such a way that value gets created. But they're the ones who ultimately receive that value and then decide how much to distribute. So they have to distribute part of it in wages and part of it in terms of materials or like upkeep and so on. 
but the key is to release as little of it as they can, right? And to suck all that blood back. So they're <laughs> they're allowing the host to survive as long as they need it. But, uh, you know, the, it's kind of that bizarre parasitic relationship in that way. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's a concrete example. Um, this uh, in in the third quarter of this year, which we have just now finished, uh, like fiscally speaking. <laughs> and I do love to speak fiscally. Yeah, if we're doing anything in this podcast right now, is talking fiscally. Um, McDonald's raised their wages, or sorry, McDonald's raised their prices by ten percent. Uh, there's a Wall Street Journal article that came up with this the other day that's uh, told in a really particular way to make them sound not like dirt bags, but they are. <laughs> um, so they raised their prices by ten percent. And um, everyone, not everyone, economic people, fiscally minded people thought, well, surely if you do that, that will probably drive down the price of your stock because less people will buy McDonald's. And uh, the interesting uh, revelation at the end of this quarter is that that did not happen. People actually bought a lot of McDonald's just the same, um, even though it costed marginally more. Um, And uh, the, the cost of their stock actually went up. So great for mcdonald's they're making money in this very weird way um but they raised the prices um and uh they had to spend some of that that raised price on um like paper products because the cost of paper has gone up and also they had to they had to spend some of it on wages because the cost of labor has gone up which is i mean kind of what you expect especially during this particular like uh i don't know economic climate but the interesting thing is that like they raised it 10 percent, and of that 10 percent um, you know, only a little bit of it went to wages and only a little bit of it went to, um, you know, actual products, uh, that they would need like paper products and like food products, that kind of thing. Um, but the rest of it is nothing. <laughs> the rest of it, they just raised it cause they felt like mm-hmm. raising it. Um, all that to say, like the, there's not always like a direct correlation between the cost of labor and the cost of products. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say here is that like, there is so much obfuscation in this whole process. Like when the rubber actually hits the road, um, it is hard to really know, you know, I mean, economically speaking, like why something is happening because um, big companies will just like do something and say it's for, for a mm-hmm. different reason, but it's, you know, not. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of inflation anyway, all around, right? There was a big story in Canada about Loblaws, which is a major grocer um, artificially inflating costs. Uh, and they did that because there's a media story around inflation, right? It's the perfect excuse. Everyone's talking about inflation. Fantastic. So we'll just raise our prices and people will blame it on inflation, a kind of magical <laughs> narrative. And, uh, then Loblaws, everybody was getting mad. So they, uh, froze the prices and they did it in such a way as like, they were like, oh, we're kind of doing everyone a favor. You know, we're not going to raise it anymore. But the irony is, like, they didn't have to raise it in the first place at the rate at which they raised those right. prices. And now they're freezing it as though they're doing everyone a favor when they're artificially inflated. They're, like, they're not reducing the costs of groceries and, and passing that on, right? So, uh, that... Wait, they they froze it at the inflated... At the inflated yeah, I mean, rate. they didn't reduce it. They were just like, oh we're not going to raise it any further for now. So, yeah, In- thank you, Incredible marketing. That's incredible yeah, PR. Exactly. I love that. That's great. <laughs> It makes them seem like such heroes when they've actually just, like, made a lot of money for themselves. And then, like, decided that's just how much money they're going to keep making. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, man, there's so many examples of this, especially in this particular particular economic moment. Um, There's this big merger in the United States between Kroger and, uh, shoot, 
like the company that owns like Fred Myers and like these other big um these other big corporations like these big grocery chains in the United States. And the same thing is happening there too, right? It's like um the consolidation of these different brands of grocery stores is also another way to um kind of just get away with uh with the inflation of prices like artificially. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, especially if you control all of the um if you can if you control all of these different chains and then you basically have like a monopoly or almost a monopoly or whatever even within like the legal limits of the law you have something that resembles a monopoly you can just jack up the prices and then like everyone just has to deal with it and that's it <laughs> that's it that's how capitalism works and that's it's that's it working well that's like what it's supposed to do that's not like it's not broken that's like that's how mm-hmm. it works mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, That's how it works is the big sort of, (laughs) I guess, revelation you often get from reading Marx too, right? Um, You read Marx and uh, suddenly discover that your boss doesn't want to give you a wage because like, I don't know, they want your money. Why would they want to give it to you? That doesn't make any sense. That's just how it works. Um, And I think that's the key to kind of take away from all the wage conversations in general is like, it's not really that much of a surprise that it's a huge slog to try to raise the minimum wage or to even try to just get a raise, um, you know, above the minimum wage or whatever in any kind of job. Um, insofar as like, you know, it's true that if you have like a highly specialized job or a kind of in demand job, maybe, uh, you know, the the idea is they're trying to pay competitive wages that might like attract a worker. It's a, a more sought after commodity, that particular labor power or skill. Um, but for everybody in that kind of bottom tier, right, the competition is not between capitalists trying to get you. The competition is between how far can we lower that wage. And the more troubling thing is when you look at it on a kind of global scale, um, there's this interesting trend in economics literature called uh, the global uh, labor arbitrage, which is like um, in you know, poor countries uh, who are trying to attract um, industrialization and foreign capital and so on. Um, This is a story everybody kind of knows, but it's interesting in a Marxist register. uh, Wages are kept low on purpose in order to bring capitalist investment to those countries, right? So all of our clothes or whatever are made in sweatshops and so on because uh, it's cheaper. Um, Our devices are made in a different country, even if they're designed in California, because it's cheaper. Um, the whole point is that on a global scale, this sort of drive to lower the wage, lower the cost of labor at every turn, uh, that drive gets kind of exported and systematized in a big global way, such that like the global poor are the ones who are you know nowhere near the kind of minimum wage fights that people are having in the U.S. and Canada or the global north more generally. And that kind of stuff is super troubling. Um, in fact, there's even some pretty wild imperialist stories of like, you know, the U.S. government basically intervening in com- in countries uh, legally to try to like keep um, wages down. There was like a big story I remember during the Obama years uh, where the administration at that time was like intervening in Haiti to keep wages lower for like some garment manufacturers and stuff. So like. This is like a, you know, a thing that that uh, affects not just like you as an employee and your boss, but also dictates uh, the global market and global political strategies and like international relations. So um, once you start kind of scaling up some of this logic, it gets even more troubling. Yeah, definitely. Um, Man, that's a great point. Um, That's true. Um, Even though you might get paid more. you know, working people have sort of a common interest regardless of where you live. Um, 
Okay. Uh, the, I, I guess kind of moving towards the the conclusion of the horror story here, right? The the monster is capitalism. The way that it kills you is wage labor. Um, and I mean, it, 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 what it means to be, you know, um, a wage laborer, I think, is also pretty horrifying in in terms of like what it does to you as a person. Um, something I really like about Marx a lot is that he always does pay a lot of attention to not just like the hard economic truth of a situation, but also like kind of the internal feelings uh, that a worker might have or like what kind of, you know, person does capitalism make a worker? Mm-hmm. Um, in the economic and philosophic manuscripts, you know, he talks a lot about alienation. That's like the early Marx that some Marxists don't like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um but I think it's good, right? Um, that uh, capitalist wage labor uh, it alienates you from yourself, right? Because you go to a job and you do a thing there, and like that, and and while you're there, you're just kind of like vacantly doing it, and like you know, passing a piece along a line, or just kind of like um, mindlessly filling out an Excel spreadsheet or something. Um, and then when you go home, like you're finally yourself again um, in this kind of weird way, right? Like where a big chunk of the day, you're sort of like not at home in your brain. You're just like uh, doing something for somebody else. And like that's really alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Capital, Marx talks about that same sort of thing, but maybe in a little bit of a different way. And, and definitely more of an economic way, because <laughs> this is the old Marx. This is uh, the big, the big gray bearded Marx that we all know <laughs> and love. Um, so I'm going to read this bit here, too. This is, uh, again, from the working day chapter of uh, Capital. So he says that it must be acknowledged that our laborer comes out of the process of production other than he entered. In the market, he stood as the owner of the commodity of labor power face to face with other owners of commodities, dealer against dealer. Right. The uh, the worker, the owner of labor power is, is a dealer amongst dealers, even like, you know, against somebody that has like a big sacks of flour or something (laughs) selling them to you. Um, The contract by which he sold to the capitalist his labor power proved, so to say, in black and white, that he disposed himself, he disposed of himself freely. The bargain concluded, it is discovered that he was no free agent, that the time for which he is free to sell his labor power is the time for which he is forced to sell it. That, in fact, the vampire will not lose its hold on him so long as there is muscle, a nerve, a drop of blood to be exploited. I like this so much because um, the economics, the, the economics part of it is like clear, right? This is not a fair relationship that workers uh, are in with wage labor. Um, but then Marx takes the next step and says, like, it also messes you up as a person right. <laughs> to be in this particular type of um, arrangement, right? You're not you're not a free agent. Um, something that uh, I've seen a lot of people say in these conversations I've been having about the minimum wage is that, like, you can just go get a better job. And, like, um, maybe you can. And, in fact, that happens a lot, right? Especially, um, I mean, the the turnover rate in fast food is extremely high, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's it's constant. Um, especially during COVID, nobody wanted to work in fast food because um, you get sick and die. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> um, pretty obvious. And And the interesting thing, though, is that um, workers would go get a better job and they would go from, you know, working at Burger King to go work at the Amazon warehouse, um, you know, on the other side of the interstate or whatever. And it's interesting because that is a better job in the sense that it pays like 15 an hour. Um, you know, you get a handful of benefits, whatever. But 
interestingly enough, the um, the turnover rate at Amazon factories or at Amazon warehouses is also extremely mm-hmm. high. People are also leaving those jobs to find different jobs. Um, I mean, so it's not like I don't know the the idea that you're just like a person who can go sell their commodity of labor power to anyone freely is like such a weird delusion mm-hmm. because like, I mean, I guess you could, but like, what if everyone is as bad? <laughs> what if, what if, you know, selling your labor power to anyone is bad? <laughs> what, what if there's no one good that you can sell your labor power right. to? Um, no one's considered that one. Well, it's also, uh, you know, it's a sort of conservative double speak too, because, um, on the one hand, okay, go get a better job or whatever. And then on the other hand, it's like nobody wants to work anymore, right? Um, how come yeah. nobody will just uh, get these these great jobs <laughs> that we're all handing out? Um, and uh, <laughs> that's the trouble is, you know, uh, if labor is a commodity and the price goes up, capitalists suddenly don't like it. And people with capitalist ideology don't don't like it or understand it either. And I think that's important to recognize that basically there are all kinds of ways that capitalism tries to constantly um, kind of like move around the the very fact that at the end of the day, the labor commodity that is traded around is attached to like real life living, you know, breathing human beings. And that yeah. is like the thing that Marx is trying to point out over and over and over again in his work is that uh, here's kind of the big economic relationship, right? And he's going to talk about it. He's going to talk about what changes prices of commodities and how labor factors into it and so on. But he wants to put the human being back at the center of it. Even the late marks, I think uh, that, that's the key, right? Um, it's uh, it's all about not losing sight of the fact that this is a human built system involving human beings and uh, treating them badly, making them into bad people. And we just don't have to do that. <laughs> that that's the, the best part about Marx. We just don't have to do this extremely bad thing. Um, and once we have a grasp, especially on how that relates to our own position as, as kind of wage laborers, I think there's a lot of freedom in that revelation. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> it seems like an overly simplistic way to put it, but like things just don't have to be this way. <laughs> they, and they, they, they just don't like it's it's not. <laughs> it's not an immovable fact of the the universe that like people have to work for these awful wages that people have to work in a situation where they're paid so little it just doesn't have to be that way um and i don't know i think marx is marx is right to point out that there are like flesh and blood people um behind these things um in ways i think a lot of people don't understand because they're so weirdly abstracted from those situations mm-hmm. um man it sucks that it is this way like I, I just i gotta say it's bad you know um another part of this conversation at least in uh, the way that it functions in the united states is uh people will say something like um you know a minimum wage isn't isn't something you're supposed to live on right it's just a it's a thing that like uh, high school students are supposed to make so they can afford like a car or, or whatever right um people say that kind of thing all the time and i think it's a very bonkers thing to say because like I, I mean, like, okay, it's bonkers because it's just factually untrue. <laughs> you know, people, people of all ages are, are uh, they work minimum wage jobs and there's nothing you can do about that <laughs> just because you think it shouldn't be that way. It is that way. The other thing is weird, though, too, because in that particular telling of the story, um, for whatever reason, the labor power of people who are younger than you is worth less than the right. labor power of people who are your age, which is very bizarre. I, I mean, I guess something that is interesting about labor power as like sort of like a particular economic unit is that it is um, 
it is a, I mean, you know, it's a universal expression with, you know, which is, I think, wrought with all kinds of problems and complications. But um, it is a universal expression that, like, someone is on the job and someone is producing value. And it doesn't really matter who that person is. Um, but, like, uh, you can see the ways that people have all these very strange biases against other people and what their time and power and, like, effort is worth uh, when they start talking about, you know, who deserves to be paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I might have told the story before on the podcast, but uh, my dad uh, grew up in Detroit and his family was a General Motors family, auto people. And uh, my dad, when he was young, got a job in the um, the GM factory floor. And he was telling me the story about how, like, his dad, you know, got in this job. And so he wanted to do a really good job at it and not, like, let him down. And so he was working really hard, like, trying to do the best job he could and being as quick as he could. And uh, one of the guys from the union came over and was like, listen, you got to slow way down. And my dad is like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Like, I got to... I got to be good at my job, you know, for my dad or whatever. <laughs> and uh, uh, this guy was like, well, that's great that, like, you want to work really hard. But, like, there are a lot of old timers around here who will never, ever be able to keep up with you. And it's really important that you don't, like, basically work harder because we don't want to have to, like, basically explain that, oh, these these workers are, like, incapable of keeping up when the job could be done this way. And my dad is like, so, yeah, I guess I have to slow down in, like, solidarity with other workers to sort of not create the expectation that work could be done that quickly or that efficiently or whatever. And uh, I think that is such an awesome story, first of all. <laughs> but it's it shows you, too, the kind of weird slippage between, like, the commodity of labor power um, how capitalism values labor power. It's always trying to find excuses to sort of cut costs or uh, or push out some bearers of that commodity in favor of, of other bearers of that commodity. You know, um, and there's lots of other ways, politically speaking, that uh, that all these things get arranged, right, in terms of race and gender and um, ability and so on. Uh, but uh, I just thought it was such a, like, great example of you know, um, I guess how to also sort of beat the bosses by understanding that, like, at the end of the day, uh, our labor power really only means anything like for us to have a say in it. Uh, if we can find ways to, like, you know, kind of move at the at the pace of like the slowest members of the herd <laughs> in that respect. Man, that's a good lesson. Um, one, that I think I'm very bad at <laughs> when I'm at work. I like to do things extremely fast and get everything done as fast as possible. And maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should take some more time. <laughs> um, maybe we should all take a little bit more time to do things. <laughs> um, if the if the vampire is going to drink all of our blood, we should make it drink our blood slightly slower. Than That's normal. right. Um, well, I have a good uh, somewhat related spooky quote that we can maybe use to sort of end on, uh, on this Halloween episode. Um, we've been talking about wages. We've been talking about uh, capital dripping with blood and uh, and dirt and so on. Um, this big spooky vampire. Uh, there's also a great line, though, in the Communist Manifesto where Marx and Engels have a, a nice spooky line. They say modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange and property, uh, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and exchange is like the sorcerer who's no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. And uh, what Marx and Engels are getting at there is there are all these kind of crises that basically uh, emerge in capitalism and capitalists aren't able to kind of, you know, smooth it out like people lose in those situations. There's a famine sometimes there's, 
devastation. There's a big sort of, you know, market crashes and so on. And uh, Marx is like, you know, trying to kind of conjure that image of like, I don't know, Mickey Mouse and Fantasia. You know, there's too many dang brooms. And uh, what are we supposed to do about it? And I think uh, about that quote quite a lot. That image comes to mind a lot when we think about stories in the news, uh, the kind of supply chain slowdowns from the pandemic, um, the knock on effects of like the war in Ukraine, all these kinds of things that kind of carry things out. And I think to bring it full circle here, you know, the 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 forces of the netherworld are out there and uh, that really wreaks havoc on our own kind of lives. Right. Like we're all being sort of hounded by the the devils of capitalism. And uh, on this big Halloween, I guess we need to find some way of, of exercising all those <laughs> all those devils. Right. Get the vampires off our back. Um, get some garlic, bring bring some crucifixes. That's the dang Christian metaphor we couldn't find till the end of this episode. We, <laughs> we need the crucifix to drive back the vampire uh, of, uh, of dead labor. I think that's the key. That's the key. That's what you got to do. The, the union is the crucifix to <laughs> the dead labor. Okay, no, I'm not going to even bother. Um, but that's true. That's, uh, that's what you got to do. That's the metaphor that we needed this whole time. Um, Okay, here we are at the end of the episode. the the spooky The spooky ghost story is over. But like you said, Dean, um, the the moral of the story is that it just doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be spooky. It doesn't have to be a scary vampire uh, drinking your blood and making you a zombie or whatever. Um, it doesn't have to be that way at all, and it just shouldn't. And you should play your part in that, I guess, dear <laughs> listener. <laughs> Do whatever you can to to make it to make it not that way. Um, all right, that's it. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can give us a piece of the wage that you earned for your labor power at the at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, if you sign up there at two bucks or more, you can join our great Discord, which is full of all kinds of folks saying all kinds of things. Uh, it's a nice little community we've got going on there. Our music is by the Illogical Spoon at the end and Amaria Armstrong at the beginning. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.